This is episode number 45, The Beginner's Guide to Meditation and Mindfulness with meditation teacher Sarah McLean. Welcome or welcome back to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to give you the tools to live a high-performance life. You have to be self-aware when you notice you're stressed. You have to change the game, so to speak, in your mind and in your body. So notice where you're putting your attention, reclaim it, take some deeper breaths, go for a walk if you can, start to relax in whatever way you can. Two times a day I meditate to create that resilience is first thing in the morning and then at happy hour. Between the hours of four and six would be ideal. Today's episode is pretty exciting. There's a lot to learn and it's all about meditation. Sarah McLean has been teaching meditation for over 20 years. I first met Sarah in Sedona this past winter when I visited her at the McLean Meditation Institute. And I know a lot of us go to Sedona for mountain biking and we probably don't even realize that this beautiful little gem is located right in the middle of Sedona. There is an instant connection and I had even more respect for her after she guided my husband and I through a meditation. It was the first time I had ever done meditation with an instructor and it was really powerful. I discovered that she's the author of two books, The Power of Attention and Soul Center, Transform Your Life in Eight Weeks with Meditation. Sarah has had an amazing and interesting life. She dropped out of high school at the age of 17 and went homeless in Florida. Then she joined the army where she first learned about meditation. She also has traveled the world with her mountain bike, riding in places like Turkey, Pakistan, and Greece, and her tremendous life experiences have given her insight for her sense of purpose on this earth. Sarah is incredibly approachable and has worked with everyone, from Fortune 500 companies to Olympic athletes to even moms and dads and children in small families. She worked with Dr. Deepak Chopra in Lancaster, Massachusetts for eight years at the Ayurveda Health Center, a transcendental meditation community. After Deepak moved to California, Sarah became the program director for the Chopra Center for Wellbeing. And I don't know about you guys, but that's a great email list and a really good resource for mindfulness and wellness and all the things that we love. With a hunger for knowledge and personal truth, Sarah took a sabbatical to seek the origins of meditation. She lived in a traditional ashram in South India for six months and was a two-year resident at a remote Zen Buddhist monastery for two years. She founded the McLean Meditation Institute in 2001. Her institute offers meditation and mindfulness classes, weekend meditation retreats, and a 200-hour teaching training program. So if you're curious about becoming a meditation instructor, you can work with her. Personally, I enjoyed this conversation because we discussed a lot of things that I'm curious about. We are familiar with the idea of meditation. We've talked about it on the show. I've written articles about it even. But the truth is that there are many different ways to do it. So if one way doesn't resonate with you, there are other methods to experiment with. And that's something that I'm interested in doing now is learning about some of the different ways to meditate. Sarah takes us through the three key ingredients to any meditation practice, different types of meditation, and where to find the resources to actually do it and get started. 
tells us about the changes that are physically occurring in our brain, the difference between mindfulness and meditation, and even has a few short guided meditations interlaced into the podcast episode. That was a special bonus because I got to do that as well, and it was some built-in meditation into my day. You'll be able to tell in this episode that Sarah is a tremendous speaker. She is very engaging, and she has a lot of knowledge, and there's definitely a lot of nuggets in this podcast. And something that I highly recommend checking out that she mentions in the show is a website called Feast for the Soul, F-E-A-S-T. And that is in the show notes, as well as her YouTube channel, which is also in the show notes. Both of those places have free guided meditations in a lot of different ways so that if you want to find meditation and find a way that resonates with you, you can check those out for just free, which is awesome. I'm excited to announce that we have a new podcast sponsor, one that you might have heard of before, Kuat Racks. And I first met Luke, the owner of Kuat Racks, almost a decade ago in Arkansas. I was at a race called the Washita Challenge, and I saw this rack that had a cool orange metal hue to it, and I was really curious about it because it seemed different from some of the other racks that I had seen before. And I was at my bike shop the other day at Sovereign Cycle, and they were telling me about their favorite rack and how their extra large frame would fall off of some of the other racks that they had. And I asked them, what rack is it that their extra large frame didn't fall off of? And they said the Kuat racks. And another cool thing about the Kuat racks was the NV 2.0 is one of the sturdiest, if not the sturdiest rack out there. And you can actually shake the rack and the car will move. And I know you guys have seen this before, people driving down the road and it looks like the rack is shaking back and forth. So I think that's a really cool thing that this is a really sturdy rack. You definitely don't want your bikes moving around and falling off, especially if you're driving through dirt roads and things like that. So thank you for the support, Kuat racks. And you can find them at kuatracks.com. K-U-A-T-R-A-C-K-S dot com. I just want to say thank you, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to my show every single week, for sending me notes, for posting on social media and screenshotting it and tagging me. It really means the world to me that you're listening to this, and it means even more that this show is making a difference and helping bring more tools into the world and more resources on how to live a balanced and happy life. We are coming up on almost one year of the podcast, so I think I need to think of something special to do for the 52nd slash one year episode. There's some really great guests. It's been a real honor to connect with so many amazing and brilliant people over the last 45 episodes. Big thank you to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon, and I am sending out some little care packages to those of you who have been supporting the show for quite a few months. I really appreciate it. It really helps the show grow. It helps it get better. I was able to invest in some new audio equipment, and I now have to learn how to use it, but that's part of the fun. So thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate that. There's been a lot of exciting things happening over here. Number one is I finally launched my lifestyle brand, Moxie and Grit. It's something that I've been working on for a little bit of time, and it's really cool to see it actually live. You can go to moxyandgrit.com or just find it on Instagram, Moxie and Grit, and it's linked up in my Instagram account. But basically what I'm trying to do and my vision with this is to create a lifestyle brand, but not just a lifestyle brand with another pair of socks or another hoodie in your closet, but something that means something 
to you, something that resonates with you or something that makes you smile. So those are what my designs are set out to do. The one that you guys are most familiar with are the effing magical unicorn socks and those are available in two colors. And I have a lot more designs that are gonna be coming out over the next year. And it's been an interesting process because I have to learn how to run a different type of business, how to build a brand, how to deal with distribution, how to manage all those different things. So as someone who likes learning, for me, it's a really fun project, but it is a balance. It's hard to add in more in addition to what I'm already doing. And I always want to do all these cool projects and it's hard to know what I'm supposed to add in and what I'm not and when I'm supposed to wait. Anyway, I'm rambling on a little bit about that, but it's something that's been on my mind and there's going to be a podcast episode coming out really soon that Matt and I recorded with a number of semi-random but relevant things and some of the questions that you guys have asked as well. So let's get into it with Sarah McLean. She's amazing. She's inspiring. And I felt really relaxed whenever I was talking to her. So here she is. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's so fun to get to talk to you again. We met in Sedona back in December when I was there, and my husband Matt and I had the great opportunity to come to your meditation center. I know that was so fun. I love seeing you. I'm so excited to be speaking to all your followers and listeners, and I know we had a great time, and I know I guided you into some meditation, so it must have been pretty good since I'm on your show. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was my first time doing a guided meditation in front of another human, and it was a really cool experience to feel the space and to just connect with a human being while doing a meditation. How has meditation been in your life? Like, how did you find meditation? <laughs> Oh, well, I think there was kind of this existential angst I'd always had as a, a young person. I ended up actually having a little bit of depression. I traveled the world kind of seeking answers outside of myself. I told you that I rode my bike around. Gosh, I went from Greece to Turkey and then went from Pakistan up to China and then went across Southeast Asia on my mountain bike. And it was 100 years ago. So this is when mountain bikes were like brand new. And there was just one kind. It was a specialized. And I remember riding my bike when I had gotten it through Harvard Square and having everybody going, oh, my God, what kind of bike is that? And it was just a novelty as I was riding. And I would ride maybe 100 to 150 kilometers a day. And that doesn't sound maybe like a lot to some people, but... It certainly was when we were going up the foothills of the Himalayas, yeah. <laughs> China, going going up for days and then going down for like an hour and then going up these mountains for days and going down for an hour. I wasn't an athlete, really. I had been in the military, and that's actually where I first learned about meditation, a soldier being trained to teach soldiers how to deal with post-traumatic stress. And as I was through my training, I, I had met a male nurse who had had us lying on the ground outside in a psychiatric ward on this hillside, and he had guided us through this whole body relaxation process. And even though I was studying to work with people who were you know, dealing with acute or chronic trauma, I had no idea that I personally was suffering from it. And I guess that's what led me to that existential angst through my life. But he had us do this maybe 10-minute practice, and I remember at the very end of it going, okay, I did not know I was even stressed out. And now I feel so like rubbery, you know, and I felt so relaxed. It was so amazing. And that stuck with me. Well, you know, actually, another time I meditated was when I was going up these hills. It was the time I was in Greece. 
it was the hottest summer of the year. I don't know why my boyfriend and I chose to travel this one part of the Peloponnese, which is called the Gates of Hell. And it was the hottest, hottest time of the year. And literally, I mean, I was trying to I got sort of delirious because, you know, it gets so hot and there wasn't really enough water. And apparently there was a big funeral going on. And so no one was home. I couldn't get any water from anyone. Bear in mind, these are the days when there were, you know, we were working with maps. That was it. You know, we didn't have a cell phone. The way we got money was to go to the closest American Express office. But I remember this delirium that set in where I, I get to the top of a mountain and I just want to throw my bike off it, which fortunately <laughs> I, was I was talked out of it. What ended up happening, though, is I started to chant. I, he taught me this chant. It's a Zen chant that was, uh, I didn't even know what it meant. But having that cadence, which reminded me a lot of the cadence we used to use in the military when we were marching, to kind of keep our attention moving, to kind of keep the momentum going. And this chant was, later I found out, a chant to Avalokiteshwara or Kuan Yin. Some, some people might have heard of her. She's the goddess of compassion that the Dalai Lama chants to. In the Zen Buddhist tradition, they call her Avalokiteshwara. And so it's to be Kanze on Namo Butsu Yo Butsu U and Yo Butsu U and Bo Po Chonin, Jo Rakugajo Chonin, Kanze on Bonin, Kanze on Nenen, Jushin Ki Nenen Furishin. Now, I did not know that chant when I started up in those <laughs> mountains, but I taped it to my pannier, my front pack, and I would read it when I would start having my mind go into the future, like, oh, my God, I'll never make it to the top, or when are we going to get there? And I'd chant it, you know, especially um, during, like, heavy winds. I was mm -hmm. going against the wind. I was Bob Seger's songs. I don't know if your listeners know who he is, but... He's saying things like against the wind. And that was <laughs> that rather than against the wind, I would sing this this chant. And it kept my mind in the present moment. It kept my mind really clear rather than defeatist, which I would sometimes get into. Yeah, you know, so that was it, probably my first initiation. I think I think it's actually really normal to want to throw your bike off the top of a mountain. <laughs> I think that We've, we've all been there. I've actually seen people in the middle of a bike race throw their bike out of angst and frustration. And there's there's been definitely times I've had my moments of that. But this idea of a mantra and this idea of staying present without worrying about how much farther to go or if you're even able to do it is really cool. And I've done that on my own in a different way. But like, what specifically is it about mantras that help us stay grounded? Well, basically, you know, there are a couple of ways to use your attention. Obviously, it's it's ideal to be the master of your own attention. And whether it means you have to imagine yourself somewhere else just because the pain in your body is so unbelievable, that's one way to use it. But the other way to use it is the way I used it through these chanting practices. I mean, you could simply use, you know, a chant that they use in the military or counting from one to ten or quoting the, you know, doing the alphabet over and over. So it doesn't really matter which you use. But what happens with this mantra, since I didn't even know what it meant, is it interrupt that constant, like I say, defeatist mental activity that I had had. I didn't know anything about brain training or mind training. I knew nothing about really meditation. All I wanted to do was find peace, really, which was why I was traveling from place to place into some unsafe areas, I have to say, but I was looking for the secrets to this piece. But what it was, was the journey was the destination, being able to use words, repeating them over and over. The, the word for repetition of a mantra is called japa, 
japa means repetition so being able to repeat over and over again something that didn't generate more thinking it didn't generate additional thoughts i was able to interrupt the thoughts i was having and really settle into that silent space between each thoughts you know between each of the thoughts i was able to just reclaim my attention reclaim my attention and uh, that's really, I think, the key to all of this meditation, mindfulness. And, you know, they don't mean the same thing. I know we're going to get into that. But to be able to be the one ridiculously in charge of your attention, that is it. Because there's a lot to pay attention to as an athlete. There's a lot to pay attention to in general. And to be the one to be the master of your own attention, that's key. That's key. Yeah, and especially in this as day they age say, with, what do they say with endurance? It's like ninety percent mental and ten percent physical. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I read this great book recently, and the author is going to come on my show about the limits of human performance, and a lot of it is in our in our mind. But yeah, it's the thinking and the telling ourselves we can or we can't do it, and then all the distractions, like you mentioned, with our phones, with all the notifications, with social media, with the computer. With text messaging, it's like our brain is a super highway and there's like a, a wreck or a flashing light every microsecond. And being able to pull ourselves out of that gives us this sense of ease, but it's really incredibly hard to do that. It is. And, you know, with the bells and whistles, let's say, we're like Pavlov's dogs. We're trained to just like look at our phone. It's almost like it's it makes this reactivity center of our brain called the amygdala happen to go on overdrive. And, you know, that amygdala is what causes or activates the fight or flight response whenever it senses danger, whether it's emotional or physical. It responds the same way, whether it's imagined or real, it responds the same way. And to put it on overdrive on a regular basis and then call it forth that same fight or flight response during a competition What's happening is you're wearing down your body. You're not able to sustain this high adrenaline and high drive because it's almost as if you've worn it out. You know, you can wear yourself out through inflammation, through lack of ability to recover. But the sustainability aspect of it, it's almost like you should save the reactivity center and the reactivity that is releasing all this ocean of hormones, whether it's adrenaline or glucagon or whatever it may be, we need to save that response for when we really need it. And in terms of an athlete, it's almost as if you need it when you need it, not when your cell phone dings or not when you're sitting in traffic or not when someone is, you know, saying something about you as an athlete on Facebook. You know, you, you need the reactivity response when you need it, not when you don't need it. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about just when you were 17, I read in your book, The Power of Attention, that you dropped out of high school and you became homeless at age 17 as a young girl. And I think that you actually have a lot of courage to be able to do that because most people think that, oh, like screw this or whatever, but to actually take that action and then also to travel the world, it, it's, it takes a, a, a strong person to do that. Well, you know, when you look at a homeless kid now, you know, whether they've chosen that way or they are just that way by, you know, socioeconomic circumstances, I think mine was a combination of both. Like I said, I, I had a lot of angst as a kid. I had a difficult childhood and I just left when I could on search of an adventure, really. I didn't know what I was getting into. And yeah, I lived on the beach in Florida, which is a nice place to be homeless, by the way, if anyone... <laughs> 
he is looking for a place. You know, I live there and it's not like it is now where there are lots and lots and lots of homeless kids. It really wasn't. There was just a small group of us, maybe about 10 of all ages, whether they were escaping from Cuba or they were, you know, somebody who was dealing with drug addiction or they just got out of jail. I mean, it was certainly crossing all the boundaries in terms of the type of person that would be homeless. But we used to hang out and we all would gather food and supplies and go meet under a, a pavilion to make dinner. And we would, you know, I'd serve everybody selling my blood. And again, wow. looking for the answers, looking for the answers to life. You know, why am I here? And for me, high school didn't make any sense. The whole social thing didn't make any sense. I was not an athlete in high school. That sort of happened later because of the need to move easily through space and time. That's why I got involved in biking and more so as I got older. But in general, I just sort of went the opposite direction of the hypnosis of social conditioning. I wouldn't recommend it for everybody because it is a rough life. It's not necessarily safe for people. And sometimes you have to adjust your values in order to make it on the streets. But, you know, I joined the army after that. I joined the army after that. So I was in the military, gosh, around the age of eight. I didn't get in until about 18 and a half. I joined earlier, but by the time I was there, I was about 18. And um, marrying a man I had met on, the, on my homeless experience down in Florida. You know, later in life, as I started working for Deepak Chopra, I was living in a monastic setting. I know that's a completely different situation, but you know, we all need the same things. We all need a safe place to sleep. We need some food to eat. We need a reason for being a raison d'etre. We need a mission in our lives. And I know when I would be in the monastery, I would sometimes drive back to do some work for the Chopra Center and I would sleep in my car in a parking lot. It was a car that's someone had given me, so it wasn't like I was living in a lap of luxury. <laughs> it was you know, had bald tires and it didn't have heat, but I would sleep in there and, you know, just to do my work. And I know many of us, when we have a passion, my passion moved from, you know, what's the reason for living to, oh, now I know what it is. Because after I really got into meditation, my reason for living was to really connect with the wonder and beauty of this creation. And, you know, whether I had done it before or not, this was really for the end game of peace on this planet. Now, I know I sound a little like John Lennon-ish, you know, they say I'm a dreamer. But, you know, truly, that is why I, I really, that's my reason for living. And, and that's why I teach meditation now. And I teach teachers to teach it all over the world. But it really does help with some of the major stuff that's affecting people like chronic depression, chronic uh, anxiety. I had really bad anxiety attacks it helps with memory. It helps with endurance. It helps with uh, knowing yourself more and, and being an, a better person in general, activating the compassion centers of the brain, activating the decision centers of the brain, and really helping people to feel much more like they're in their integrity. Yeah, you know, I really can connect with that statement that you made because personally, I was having some issues myself and it was more deep-rooted issues and self-worth and perfectionism and feeling that I was conditionally loved. And it wasn't until I found yoga, which had a deep spiritual practice and component to it, that I really started to change and become more accepting of who I am. And it really peeled back the layers for me. And 
I, I want to talk in a minute about the different types of meditation, but it was deeply rooted in being present and doing your best to be present and accepting that this is who you are right now and it doesn't matter what happened before or what's going to happen later and just deep acceptance of that. And that was very powerful for me and it's something that I continually practice on a daily basis and it's I don't think that those things are things that go away in your life. I think that you always have those with you and it's having the right tools to to deal with those. So it's been really neat to find meditation as something separate from yoga and to try and integrate that into my life. Well, you know, you're, you've touched on a lot of really important points. You know, I know as athletes, you obviously want to be the best you can be. And it's, there's an element of competition, whether it's with yourself or with others. And of course, there's that sense of accomplishment when you do reach a particular goal. And I think what you're talking about is self-esteem, that when we hang our hat or our our happiness depends on something external, what we've been able to accomplish, what uh, other people think about us, you know, our external measures of success, you know, maybe even our numbers and our letters, how much education you have or what you weigh or how fast you are, all of these external points of reference are transitory. You know, they really, really are. So what starts to develop with the practice of yoga and the practice of meditation is this deepened sense of self-compassion. It's different than self-esteem. It's really born of appreciating yourself and the path that you're on, appreciating the hard work that you're doing. And there's an element of being really kind to yourself. And I know a lot of us feel like we can't reach our goals unless we kick ourselves in the ass. And, you know, there's an element of, yeah, you have to get out and train and make yourself do it. But there's all, there are two ways to train. There's one way to train where you're constantly berating yourself and being nasty to yourself and treating yourself like an enemy. And there's the other way to train where, you know, you're treating yourself like a good training partner, you know, like great job, keep it going, you know, like anyone would do when they're lifting weights or training, you need a coach that's cheering you on, not berating you. And there's some really bad habits. I don't know where they come from culturally. And it is a pretty much a Western issue. It's not so much in the Eastern traditions where you beat yourself up in order to get to a goal. And I think that you know, notice when that's happening and then let that go. And I think yoga helps you to do that because you become so much more self-aware. I mean, it's just you and your posture and your breath. It's just you and you and you. It's your your thoughts, your feelings, your body, your environment. And truly, that's the yoga. Yoga means to connect to and create this integration of the mind and the body. And, um, you know, it creates this alignment. And so where these these self-defeating behaviors start to creep in, you catch them. Again, this is that attention. It's being able to be really present, self-aware, and to be able to thwart these bad habits and change your habits by how you pay attention. So yeah, yoga is, if you read the Yoga Sutras, there are eight limbs of yoga. It's called Ashtanga. That means eight. There is a type of yoga that's called Ashtanga, but the eight limbs really refer to behaviors Social graces, behaviors, breath awareness, attentional training, obviously the asana, mindfulness, meditation, and then the the goal, so to speak, even though it's the goalless goal, is this samadhi, this enlightenment. So in yoga, the yoga sutras, the asana itself, what you're talking about, the yoga practice, is only two sutras out of 200. The rest really all deal with behavior 
and attention. So it's kind of interesting to note. And so meditation is really about training the brain. It refers to so many practices that are both ancient and modern now that help to settle the nervous system, train the brain, and help you to become much more self-aware. also creates this new normal, one where you're present and responsive rather than reactive and stressed out and checked out, and um, does develop that self-compassion, which I think is important for everyone, athletes included. Yeah, it was really cool. I got to talk with Dr. Kristen Neff, and she's, for those of you who don't know, she's a a self-compassion researcher. She developed the self-compassion scale, so I'll put that in the show notes as well for some additional listening. But Sarah, I want to ask you about some of the different types of meditation. Like A lot of us are familiar with headspace. That's something that's talked about pretty often and the just sitting and trying to breathe and count your breaths. But I know that there's many types of meditation. And I think that some people have tried headspace and said, well, like that's not really for me. And then they've given up on meditation completely without realizing that there's other avenues and other ways to pursue it. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. And I think it's important to not be sidetracked by the various brand names of meditation, whether it's transcendental meditation or headspace or in MBSR or insight, but to look beyond the brand names and look at the techniques. And I'm going to share with you the three common ingredients to every meditation practice. You know, as you know, I went off to live in a Zen Buddhist training center for two years. I moved to an ashram for six months. I worked with Deepak Chopra for eight years, training a lot of athletes too with him. And, you know, the truth is that there are three ingredients and here are what they are, whether you're working with headspace or working with transcendental meditation or mindfulness practice. The first is your willingness to do it. Just like you in in training have to be willing to, you know, get on your bike or get on the track or get into the gym every single day, it takes that willingness and that's accompanied by a resolve, this resolve that you're going to do it even if you don't feel like it, even if it's not your best day, even if you've got a lot of other things on your mind. So every day, that willingness and resolve to do it and stick to it. The second ingredient for meditation is the gentle attention that you use. Now, just like you're listening to me, it's an attention that doesn't require like Jedi powers or superhuman powers of concentration. Those will be developed with meditation, but you don't have to have that as a prerequisite to get into it. Just like you don't have to be a gold medal athlete to start being an athlete. You know, you have to start somewhere. And so with this, I want to just give you an example of of attention and how easy it is to use your attention, whether you're focusing on something you feel, you hear, or you see. And so right now, turn your attention to your breath. And now, begin to listen to the sounds in your room or your environment. And now, open your eyes if they're closed and look around your room or wherever you are. And notice the light and the dark, the shadows and the brightness. So what I just did there was show you how easy your attention can be. It didn't take 
a whole lot of strength to pay attention to your breath or listen to the sounds in the room or look for shadows in light. The gentle attention that you use in meditation is just like this. So you need your resolve to do it, your gentle attention, and then an object to focus your attention on. So let me give you the various types, and this might really demystify meditation for you. So let's say you're focusing on a sight-based meditation. Some people I was teaching yesterday, and this woman said she was in a hypnosis program with a social worker, and she said they were constantly having her imagine something. Imagine going for a goal or being in a really sweet environment like a by a creek on a mountainside. So quite often, you know, that's used. It's used a lot with athletes, public speakers, is to imagine something. So that's using your inner eye, your mind sight. Now, some people use an external focus for sight. They might look at the night sky and pick a, a star or some body of uh, a heavenly body. Too. Other people might look at a candle flame, while others might look at a, a mandala or some geometric pattern. So some people focus on something they see. Some people focus on something that they feel. My, uh, headspace quite often uses breath, right? Just like you feel your breath as it moves in and out of the body. This is also, by the way, one of the number one mindfulness techniques, some people pay attention to physical sensations, and this is done, by the way, without a lot of evaluation or judgment. There's no good knee or bad knee. It's just simply feeling the sensations of lightness and heaviness, pressure, warmth or coolness, tingling, sharpness, wetness, like the feeling of the water in your eyes or dryness. So you can pay attention to the sensations in your body, just like the sensations in your breath. You can also pay attention to movement in meditation. Another, those two, the breath and body are both mindfulness go-tos. And then there's the walking meditation, which is really paying attention to the subtleties and the micro movements of the way your body maintains balance and the way your body moves through space and time. It's done without a particular goal. And it's done much more slowly than anybody might like. And it's really to bring your attention to this moment. All of them are. Your body's right here. Your breath is right here. And when you're walking, you're right here. There's also the practice of sensation in the terms of emotion. So some of you might have heard of loving kindness practice where you pay attention and, and generate compassion. Other people might have heard of gratitude meditation where you are grateful for a particular person, place, or thing, including your own body. So there are lots of sensation-based meditations. And then there's sound-based meditations. So you had talked about headspace, how there's the sensation of breathing and the internal counting. That's a sound that you're thinking. Most of our thoughts are linguistically structured. Like when you're using headspace, you're counting your breaths. You're thinking of the numbers. Some people even use the vowels. You can say vowels to yourself or you can repeat your own name like uh, Lord Alfred Tennyson, the poet, used to use his own name as a mantra. He would say it again and again and again. Some people count. Some people do it out loud or silently. And then other people for sound-based meditations are listening to sounds. 
whether they're listening to the sound of the wind in the trees, the sound of your tires on the road, the sound of your feet as they're on the gravel, or the sound of your own heartbeat, or the sound of your own breath. Now, when you're using your attention to focus on sound, you're not generating a story. You're not evaluating it. You're not trying to change anything. It's almost as if you're tuning in to the sound of the sound, the sound of the ocean waves as they move in and out from the shore. So you can listen to sounds of nature. You can make sounds or you can think sounds as a focus for your meditation. So what really occurs here is there's you, there's that what you're paying attention to, and there's that continuous practice, continuous practice. That's what trains the brain. It doesn't much matter choose to focus on, whether you choose one, two, or three of these senses. But what does matter is your willingness to stick with it. And I want to give you an example. I think the reason Headspace works is because it's an allotted amount of time. Hopefully, when you're engaging in that program, you're not saying, gosh, you know, I'm just going to do it until it, I'm done. I'm not going to keep up with it. I'm just going to stop until I feel like it's over. Uh, or let me put it this way. I'm just going to um, use my own personal sense of whether it's working or not in order to determine whether it's working. Now, you know, as an athlete, you can't always see the benefits as you're in the middle of training. You know, sometimes the mind will tell you to stop. It protests. It says, hey, it's not working today or let's go back and do this tomorrow. Or, But you know, as an athlete, you have to say thanks for sharing and stay with your practice. The same is true for when you're doing meditation. The mind is going to protest and it's pretty loud when your eyes are closed and it seems so compelling to stop, but you don't. And when you don't stop, if you predetermine the amount of time you're going to meditate for, just like you predetermine probably how much time you're going to train for and to work out, you know, if you stick with it, what happens, and this is the part where the brain starts getting really trained, what happens is you stop addressing and replying to that reactivity center of the brain, which says, hey, this isn't working, or don't you remember you're supposed to call this person, or, you know, there's really something more important you should be doing than sitting here. When that internal dialogue starts to activate and create literally anxiety that you should stop and attend to whatever that is, that's the amygdala. And when you just override it and stick with your practice, even when it gets a little bumpy, that's when the amygdala, that fight or flight center takes a back seat. Now, there's a lot of research on this right now. And what they're seeing is that what you pay attention to, you encourage to thrive. And also how you pay attention and what you pay attention to can change the structure of the brain. Now, here's something that you probably don't know is if you don't let the amygdala dominate your experience, it starts to take a back seat and becomes less activated and won't hijack your attention as much as it does. Right now, it has the main floor. It's almost like the ego. It's like it's got the floor. But when you sit through meditation and say, thanks for sharing, I'm going back to my practice, the amygdala starts to shrink its density. But that's okay because what starts to increase in density is the hippocampus, which is the center of learning and memory. That gets more and more dense as the cortisol levels go down with meditation because the cortisol attacks this part of the brain, which is the short-term memory, which will uh, – it's the part of the brain that 
is uh, wondering, you know, why did I walk into this room? Or what is that person's name again? Or why did I just open the refrigerator? Or where am I going? That part of the brain, the amygdala, can get really affected by stress. And that part of the brain also can be healed and managed with meditation. And there's one other part of the brain that I think that you were kind of referring to, Sonia, is, is the insula. That part of the brain that becomes much more self-aware. It's the compassionate center. Self-compassion starts to get more activated and cultivated. And that part of the brain has more gyrifications, more folds. And as you have more folds, you have more neurons. As you have more neurons, you have more self-awareness. So this is where you can catch yourself beating yourself up or you can catch yourself ruminating over a shot you missed or a goal you didn't get. That part of the brain becomes much more activated as well. So as the amygdala shrinks, the insula gets more folds, the hippocampus becomes more dense, and the entire neocortex has more neurons. And that gets thicker and thicker, even with as little as eight weeks of meditation. Wow. Yeah, so it sounds like regularity is really important for getting more neurons and just training your brain to physically change. Absolutely. And, you know, here's something, too. I think, you know, we're talking about the real basics, the real components of meditation, but there's some, you know, esoteric aspects of it, which, you know, I was reading about in, um, I always recommend this book when I talk about people going for a goal. It's uh, Phil Jackson's 11 Rings. And, you know, I often work with home manufacturers and a lot of organizational teams that come to Sedona where I live and uh, working with them. And I ask them, you know, whether you're going for a goal, let's say you're, you're golfing or hunting or doing the archery or something. What happens is you have to aim for the goal. Let's say you're aiming on the green for this hole. So you're, you're aiming lacks your body. You cannot will this into being. And you all know this. You have to get into the flow on demand. And you have to let your body relax so it doesn't and your mind relax so it doesn't thwart this natural flow of going from A to B. So that's where meditation comes in. It creates this um how can I say it, this flexibility in the nervous system, its ability to turn on and turn off when you need it to rather than having it be hijacked and, and wearing it out. And so I wanted to read you something, too, because there's another aspect of it that I think is important. And um, let me read this. It's a parable of leadership. And it's really um, this parable that Phil Jackson's sharing with his team. And it says, um, so there was a story that was a young prince was sent by his father to study how to become a good ruler with a great Chinese master. The first assignment the master gave this prince was to spend a year in the forest alone. When the prince returned, the master asked him to describe what he had heard. And the prince replied, I could hear the cuckoos sing and the leaves rustle and the hummingbirds hum, the crickets chirp, the grass blow and the bees buzz. And after the prince finished, the master told him to return to the forest and listen for what more he could hear. So the prince went back to sat alone in the forest for several days and nights, wondering what the master was talking about. Then one morning, he started to hear faint sounds that he had never heard before. Upon his return, the prince told the master, When I listened more closely, I could hear the unheard, the sound of the flowers opening, the sound of the sun warming the earth, and the sound of the grass drinking the morning dew. The master nodded, 
To hear the unheard, he said, is a necessary discipline to be a good ruler. So in Phil Jackson's conversation with his team, he said, this is a skill everyone in the group needs, not just a leader. In basketball, statistician count when, count when players make assists or pass that, passes that lead to scores. But he's always been more interested in having players focus on the pass that leads to the pass that leads to the score. That's the kind of awareness that takes time to develop. To hear the unheard, to make the visible or the invisible become visible. And this is kind of, uh, again, it's a little esoteric, but it really is a benefit of meditation as you're settling your nervous system down with this daily practice. Obviously, it has physical benefits. Obviously, it has benefits mentally as well and the physical aspect of the brain. But more importantly, your awareness gets much more attuned to the subtleties of the senses. And it was Aldous Huxley that said, you know, that's the doorway to the infinite is through the purification of your senses. And when they talk about flow, and you've probably heard, you know, I've only heard stories about it where, you know, someone might be in the flow. And and I even think it might have been Kobe Bryant, who's also a meditator. He says, you know, he's in the flow and everybody seems to be moving at a slower speed. And this is being able to tap into that timelessness, that spacelessness, that perfection of movement, that balance. That's what we're looking for here. It's almost superhuman, but it's not because it's everybody's birthright. And Sarah, you mentioned all these different types of meditation practices. Is there a place where people can go find that? Like where if they're saying, okay, well, I didn't really connect with transcendental meditation. I want to try some of these other modalities. Where, where can they find that stuff? Well, it really depends. You know, here's the thing. You need to find a voice that you like. Some people don't like the headspace voice. Some people don't like my voice. Some people want to sit in silence. So I'm going to give you two places. Obviously, you can go on the internet and YouTube and find something. And I have a whole channel there where I have about 30 recorded meditations. Oh, cool. And they're all different. Yeah, and they're all different. But they also are combined with teaching. So I might teach for like 20 minutes and then lead a meditation for 20. So you have to kind of bookmark where you're wanting the meditation if you want to listen to it again and again. But I also did a couple of series on the Yoga Sutras and the Yamas and Niyamas, which is all about developing nonviolence, contentment, getting connected to all that is, generosity of heart, studying that which is sacred, whether it's going out into nature or reading a, the Bible or whatever. But there are many of those, and they are located on this nonprofit I run, which is called Feast for the Soul. So it's Feast, F-E-A-S-T, for the soul.org. Feastforthesoul.org. And that is a place where you can find all traditions, whether you're looking for Tibetan Buddhist traditions, Kabbalah, looking for contemplative Christianity, Vedic traditions, Hindu traditions, self-improvement, self-compassion. There are probably about, I don't know, a thousand meditations on there. They're all free. Wow. I can't wait to go check all that out. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> That's amazing. I wanted to ask you because I, I just started reading a book that a previous podcast guest recommended called Mindfulness in Plain English. And there's all this talk that mindfulness and meditation are two completely different things. They're related, but they're not the same. So can you enlighten us on what the difference is? I would love to. So every meditation should have a component of mindfulness to it whether it's simply sitting down and becoming aware of how you're physically feeling and welcoming the sounds in the environment, or whether it's when you come out of meditation to become mindful of how you're feeling. 
But let me give you a couple of definitions here. So mindfulness really means to be engaged with what you're doing while you're doing it without judgment, to have a kind of a becoming aware of how you are and what you're doing. And it's really just uh, cultivating the observer. Now, mindfulness is really important when it comes to not getting hurt. You know, you want to be mindful when you're walking, riding your bike in traffic, you know, all of these things, driving. But also think about mindfulness as a way of really connecting. Think about what it feels like to be really heard or seen by someone who really you really care about rather than what it feels like to not be heard or seen by someone you care about because they whip out their phone and they're busy texting. You know, mindfulness is really an engagement of attention and it's a practice of engagement. So there are two ways to practice mindfulness. The first way is to incorporate it in your daily life. So I like to use this example. You know, I go to this beach a lot and my husband It's in Mexico. And my husband and I were walking once and he goes, oh, no, I left my wallet in the room, but I didn't lock the safe. And I'm walking the beach and and I'm listening to the waves and feeling the sun. And it's so beautiful. And he's walking the beach thinking about what's going on in the room. So there are two ways to do everything. One is mindfully and one is being completely present physically, but mentally checked out. Right. Mm -hmm. So mindfulness is a way of living, but it's also a meditation practice. I mentioned breath awareness, body awareness, and walking meditation. Those are three of the formal meditation practices you can use. So, But then we just talked earlier about mantra practice, chanting, gratitude meditation, loving kindness. Those are not necessarily mindful. Let's just take, for instance, a mantra practice, one where you're sitting with your eyes closed and you're introducing Maybe you're using the relaxation response that Herbert Benson out of Harvard recommends using the word one on silently repeating it on every exhale. So as you're doing that, you're not engaged necessarily. You're not mindfully aware of your environment. You're letting your attention become very laser focused on the sound of your breath and the sound of this word one that you're silently repeating. Now, what that does, and same with mantras in the, wor- in the world of transcendental meditation or primordial sound meditation and some other mantra practice that you've heard of Vedic meditation, what those are designed to do is to interrupt the constant internal dialogue that you're having with yourself and allowing you to go into settled, more and more settled levels of the thinking process. So you might be using your mantra, it's very pronounced to you mentally initially, but then it just becomes sort of this faint blip on the screen. And you realize at one point that there's no mantra, no thought, no sound of anything in particular. You're in this deep silence. Now, you cannot think your way there. You cannot will your way there. It's a result of an easy practice that you're doing. That is not a mindfulness practice. That is a practice that is a transcendent practice, one where you're transcending or going beyond all of the senses, one where you're not engaged, but you're almost disengaged. And so that's a different practice. Now, here's another one. If you were to use that loving kindness practice, also called metta bhavana or metta meditation, that's a practice that you're generating or cultivating a particular mood or feeling that you offer to someone who's not in your environment. 
and we could do it right now. And so in this moment, you can imagine someone that you really love and get a sense of him or her. It could be even a, an animal and get a sense of them doing what they do and feel the love you have for them. Now in this practice, you'll silently repeat this blessing or this offering towards this being. And the blessing can go something like this. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be free from suffering. May you be happy. So in this practice, you can go ahead and offer these phrases of compassion toward the imagined one. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be free from suffering. May you be happy. So as you do this, you're cultivating this compassion and there's something to be said in physics about how prayer or how your attention travels through time and space and has an effect on the object of your attention. So you can faith and this is the practice and it goes on to, and let's do this other practice that it can go on to. With that same compassion, that same sincerity, turn those same phrases of compassion toward yourself. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be free from suffering. And may I be happy. So you can repeat these a few different times, keeping your body relaxed as you do. So this practice involves a little bit of mindfulness, whereas you have to be present to what's going on, but you're also generating imagination. So you're bringing something into this picture that's not here other than in your mind. So there's also contemplative poetry practices, prayer practices that take you, and visualization practices that take you out of this moment and into another so not every meditation is mindful, though you can begin every meditation with a mindfulness, mindful awareness and come out with a mindful awareness. But some meditations are designed to take you to another place in time, whether it's a past life meditation, a future life meditation, imagining yourself in another place in time um, to soothe yourself or to get yourself out of some pain. There was a great book written by Viktor Frankl. Um, it's called Man's Search for Meaning. And he was in a concentration camp and he was a master of his own attention while everybody was seeing the horror of their current situation. And he would witness the behaviors of these people. He was a psychiatrist or psychologist. He was able to, on purpose, put his attention somewhere else, on purpose, future, into teaching his classroom when he got out of the out of the hall, out of the prison, out of the concentration camp, he kept projecting into the future. And this is a great way. It's dissociative, but it's a great way to take yourself out of some pain. It's not, it's not sustainable. However, it's to be used almost prescriptively, but it is used to address a certain issue that's hard to bear. And um, sometimes that's an athlete who is in incredible pain, who is not willing to listen to his or her body. So, 
there are all kinds of meditations, prescriptive, preventative, and find one that you love. Find one that you love. There's not one that's better than another. That's awesome. And Sarah, I wanted to ask you about that example you were giving of your husband on the beach where he wasn't there because he was thinking so much about, oh, my wallet, what's going to happen? And a lot of times in our daily lives, we have stuff like that happening all day, every day. So when you're in that agitated state, what would you recommend people do to try and make that better? Well, I I love, again, what Phil Jackson talks about. He goes, you know, it doesn't matter when he's heading to the playoffs. Obviously, he won 11 times, but or coach people to win 11 times. But he says, you know, you get agitated. You can get agitated. And your whole being is sort of attending to and pointing to that event. And But, you know, self-awareness is key because you know that that agitation is not helpful at that time. You know, you want it when you want it, but you don't want it when you're just imagining it. You want it when you need it. And so you can go ahead and be as prepared as possible, of course, for whatever's coming your way having great faith that you're, you've done all you can do until you get there and then take care of your nervous system, just like you take care of your muscles when and before the event. So if you can sit in mindfulness, paying attention to the body and the breath, sometimes you need something a little more charming because sometimes it's just the obsessive thoughts come in. You know, I just want to say there are a couple of ways to address it. Um, you can go into a meditation. You can go lie down and do a yoga nidra. I don't know if you've ever done that, Sonia, but I it's lying it. down and it moves so fast. Yeah, it moves so fast you can't have another thought. It's like <laughs> left hand, right hand, left elbow, right elbow. and But it's a great way to get your mind off of something and to settle your body down. Because remember, the body reacts whether it's imagined stress. If you're watching a horror movie – your body reacts the same way as if you were in that horror show. The, the amygdala is just not very discerning. So you really want to take care of it. So it's not creating these oceans of activation of cortisol and adrenaline and glucagon and all these other activations, the heart racing, the breath changing, the platelets getting thick and sticky, the circulation patterns going awry. This all happens just if you're imagining something stressful. So I say, Stop it right there. Take some deeper breaths if you can through the nose, not through the mouth. That activates the parasympathetic response. You can make sure that you're meditating every day. The first two times of day, well, the two times I recommend is first thing in the morning and then at happy hour, whatever that is. And I know if you're training first thing in the morning, you want to wait for your heart rate to go back to its resting state if you can rather than meditating. I do work with a lot of athletes and it's interesting. I'll just say, just try it for a week. Meditate before you run or meditate before you go to the gym. And I just had a call two days ago with a, someone who trained to be a teacher. She's a, an athlete, owns a couple of gyms. And she said, you know, for the first time I meditated before I worked out. I've never done that before because that was her priority is working out. She said it made a huge difference in her recovery and her resilience. So I'm going to recommend that because that's what you're looking for. You're looking for tone in the nervous system, a quick recovery, more resilience. And um, so you can, you know, obviously if you have to be self-aware when you notice you're stressed, you have to change the, the game, so to speak, in your mind and in your body. So notice where you're putting your attention, reclaim it, 
take some deeper breaths, go for a walk if you can, start to relax in whatever way you can. So the two times a day I meditate to create that resilience is first thing in the morning and then at happy hour, whatever you do, sort of before your happy hour, whether you get online or do another workout, between the hours of four and six would be ideal. Now, here are the five essentials I wish someone had told me. The first is that thoughts are going to be okay. You know, you're going to get distracted. You're going to go back to the what you should have done, could have done, wish you'd done, or what you should do, will do, can do. And it's okay, you know, you're trying to pay attention to your breath and your mind gets hijacked once again. Here's when you need to know it's okay to have thoughts, but your main job is to refocus your attention again, 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 onto whatever object you've selected, your breath, your body, your mantra. Now, that is the training. That is the training of attention. That is what's going to give you Jedi attention, you know, be able to do that. Secondly, be kind to yourself in meditation. Do not beat yourself up. I spent a lot of time personally doing that, and I can tell you it does not afford a better meditation. So be kind to yourself. Um, and then also remember meditation is helping you to live a better life. It's not so much what goes on in meditation that's important. It's how your life really manifests is that's important. Are you clearer, healthier, more resilient, more present? That's the reason to meditate. And the third essential I say is let go of any expectation. This goes for you when you're an athlete too. You know, you have to let go of the expectation. You have to do your best, but you have to let go of it because you want to stay present with what's going on. You want to do your best in the moment, make the right choices in the moment. If you're constantly saying, is this it? Is this it? Half of your attention is in the present and half is in the future. Half is monitoring what's going on. You know, in meditation, you want to let the flow unfold. You want to let what happens happen without being the one, you know, who's making it happen. Meditation's about surrender, really. The fourth one is to not to try so hard. You know, I think it was, uh, I don't even know who it was, but you'll know this quote, do or do not, there is no try. Wasn't do that or do like not. Yoda? <laughs> Yoda, Yoda, right. <laughs> do or do not, there is no try. It's like, can you try and run? No, you run. Can you try and bike? Well, you know what that does? It makes it harder. No, you just do it. So you do it or not. So if meditation, you do it. You don't have to try to meditate. You simply do it. And of course, the last one I say is stick with it, which is right back to predetermining that mind training time. Don't make it arbitrary. Don't make it based on your experience. And, and truth, your experience or your opinion does not matter in terms of how well the meditation's going. If we were to go ahead and take, you know, objective measures like a blood pressure machine or an EEG or take a look at your cortisol levels, we would see that meditation is working. But you can't know that by your own opinion or your own subjective experience. So you have to go with objective measure. And same, same thing goes for objectively measuring the time. So to time your meditations, you can use, I love the Insight Timer. You can just do it with the bell. There are tons of great meditations on there too, by the way. It's an app on your phone. You want to put your phone on airplane mode <laughs> and um, then use the timer. And uh, so you want to use something that's not going to jar you out of the meditation experience because the truth is meditation takes you to the fourth level of consciousness where we're most, most of us are in the first three, waking, dreaming, and sleeping. With meditation, we go to another state of consciousness 
one that's called restfully alert. You're rested, yet you're completely alert and aware. And so even though your body's in that deep rest state, you know, you're not checked out. You're not in a dull state like sleep. So we want to come out of meditation slowly. Yeah. And how long do people need to meditate for to start seeing any type of difference? Well, you know, probably in the 2012, they came out with this new study about eight weeks and of uh, 20 minutes a day. And I can tell you that they're finding more and more that the changes that happen in the state of meditation actually start creating long-lasting traits in the brain. And it can happen as, in as little as two weeks now, they're finding. Obviously, we've all got a goal. You know, whether your goal is to win a gold medal or to be enlightened or to fall in love or to have a better relationship with your parents or, or children or whatever it may be. We all have a goal, but meditation, the goal is to just do it and the benefits will show up. You know, you don't have to maintain that goal in your awareness while you're doing the meditation. So I'd say do it every day, you know, do it and see how it manifests. Sometimes the changes are immediate and sometimes other people notice them before you do. Like, wow, what's going on with you? You seem like totally chilled out, you know, mm -hmm. or you're much easier to get along with. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, I would say just do it. Set aside a time, just like brushing your teeth. You know, you're not looking for a fabulous experience. You do it every day, and it makes you feel better. It helps prevent disease. And just use it like you would, you know, your training. You know, how many days a week do you train, Sonia? Uh, six days a week. There you go. Meditate <laughs> for six days a week. There you go. That's awesome. I think I think this is probably a good place to wrap it up. Like I could literally sit here and talk all day with you. And I, I have so many other questions I want to ask. But where's a good spot for people to connect with you for more information and also to find all of your books? Oh, okay. Well, you can go to my website, of course, and I'll spell the name. It's McLean, M-C-L-E-A-N, meditation.com. And my books are called The Power of Attention and Soul Centered. Transform Your Life in Eight Weeks with Meditation, which actually goes over about 22 different meditation practices. I have all of those recorded as well. So you can go to YouTube, just Google my name, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, McLean, M-C-L-E-A-N. It should take you to my YouTube page. And um, there are lots of interviews with me, but you, there's a whole section on meditation. So go to that. That's great. And if people are in Sedona, can they come see you? Absolutely. Just like you did. I have... Um, Meditations every day at my center, some of them are silent, so you have to kind of have a practice going. They're 45 minutes twice a day, silent meditations. But we also have the drop-in meditation for people who just want to experience meditation. It's every Sunday at 2, and they're $5 or free, depending on your budget. For mountain bikers, you know, I don't know if you've all seen that white line video, but you want to YouTube that. It's uh, really interesting about the the area here in Sedona, it might inspire you to come here. There's a great marathon here. A lot of mountain bikers, some of the best mountain biking in the country is here. So yeah, come and check us out. Cool. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing all of your knowledge. It was really helpful to learn a lot more from you. And I'm excited about all the resources that you've given us because now I can deepen my practice as well. Well, just remember one thing. Meditation only works if you do it. Not if you think about it or listen to this podcast. 
That's awesome. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Sarah. And I hope that I get to see you soon, or maybe I can come to one of your retreats someday. That sounds great. Anytime I'm doing a great one, I'm starting this new type of retreat. I go to these animal rescue places and, you know, where all the rest racehorses are kind of put to pasture. I go to these animal rescue places and we meditate with the animals and we do writing workshops and mindfulness practices. It's so fun. So yeah, come and, you know, usually I don't do a podcast without leading a meditation. So for those of you listening today, thank you for your kind attention. And you know, sit for a few minutes with your eyes closed at the end of this and just pay attention to your breath. Let go of any expectations about what's supposed to happen or if you're good at it or not. And just do it for the sake of your own nervous system. Do it for about maybe 10 minutes and uh, come out slowly and see if, if you feel any better. It's great to, and you might feel like relaxed and you might feel like you're not having at the top of your game. But just like pulling a bow and arrow back in order to hit the target, that's what meditation is. You have to pull the bow back. You have to swing the golf club back. You can't be always on. You have to pull back to get that momentum. That's great. Thank you. So thanks, Anya, for having me. Thank you so much. And yeah, hopefully we can connect again soon. Take care. Wow, wow, wow. There's a lot of information in that show, a lot of really useful tips on how to get deeper into your meditation practice and how to stick with it. I know that if I'm being totally honest, it's hard for me to stick with the meditation practice and show up every single day to do it. I tend to go in phases where I'll do it for two or three weeks and then I'll just stop completely and then I'll get back into it again. But that routine usually falls to the wayside when I start traveling and that's when I stop meditating. And that's probably when you need it most, when you're not feeling very grounded. So I'm excited about all the resources that Sarah gave us so that I don't have any excuses. And hopefully you guys can hold me accountable and I can do the same thing for you guys so that we can all work on this together. Thanks again for subscribing to the show. And also, I really would appreciate it if you could leave a review on iTunes. It's easiest to do it on your computer. Um, There's a little bit of challenge, but if you just go to ratings and reviews on iTunes, you can leave a review or just send me a message and I'm happy to help you do that. It really helps the growth of the show. It helps it become more visible in iTunes, the more people who have subscribed and left a review. So thanks in advance for doing that. Something I've really been focusing on in the last nine months with all of my newer business ventures is trying to create a team around me. And I've done so much on my own for over a decade, and I'm trying to find ways to be more efficient and also create more quality. So I just wanted to say thank you to my podcast producer, Roma. He's been with me since episode one, which is absolutely incredible. And I feel really lucky to have him as a part of my team. Are you guys surviving spring break? I'm pretty excited. I'm going to go to Vancouver and Squamish for a little bit to get in some riding on some of my most favorite trails ever. I love Squamish and I'll also get to see some of my family. My sister-in-laws and brother-in-laws all live in Vancouver, so it will be good to see them. And then I'm off to Florida because Matt has a work conference there and that one spouses are welcome and also 
pretty much all the spouses go. So I'll be going there and Matt and I will both have our road bikes. And I really don't road ride very often. It's going to be one of my few road rides of the year on the curly bar bike. So that's how I make fun of my road bike. But it's actually a cross bike and it's pretty sweet. It's a, a Scott addict cross bike and I'm really lucky to have it. If you guys are going to be at Sea Otter Classic, it's in Monterey, California, April 17th through the 22nd, and I will be there. I'll be doing a ride with Wahoo Fitness on the Friday. I'll be doing some autograph and poster signings with some of my other sponsors, and I'm also dun 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 signing up for the cross-country race. I cannot remember how many years it's been since I've actually done a cross-country race, And I think it's going to be a good opportunity to have a little bit of fun and definitely to get some training in because I am not super good at those super high intensity efforts. And that's what I've been focusing on in my training. And that's going to be the focus for at least a couple of months because the Andalusia bike race made it clear that I don't have that super turbo power. And I think that it's going to help everything to start working on that a little bit more. I want to thank, again, our podcast sponsor, Kuat Racks. They're awesome. I can't wait to try it myself. I'm going to be getting a rack very shortly. I've just seen it on other people's bikes and drooled over them in the bike shop. And they are only sold in bike shops. They don't sell them online to consumers. So if you want to get a rack, make sure that you go to their website, kuatracks.com, or find a dealer in your town. That's it for this week. Thanks again for joining us and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.